I learned this morning uh, that Dr. Wentz's father enjoys my camping stories, and so you're in for a treat this morning. We're going to talk about some things uh, related to my experience in backpacking. And one of the things, which I'm sure you can appreciate, that I've learned over the years is uh, to avoid the mistakes of, of what I call destination disease. Destination disease is that mostly unconscious decision to move as efficiently as possible from point A to point B while maintaining an undistracted focus on the few feet of ground in front of you. <laughs> the problem is, is that although you get to your intended destination, you will have missed out on the beauty that surrounds you all along the way because you never stopped long enough to look around. That's why I make a point these days as I go hiking to every once in a while just stop and look at the things that surround me and be thankful for, for what I see. And this is especially true when you're backpacking in the mountains. You have an opportunity to go over a big mountain pass because when that opportunity comes, you have the unique opportunity to, to stop and, and look and see where you've been to take in the view of where you're at, and even sometimes to even look ahead to, to where you're going. This is where we see that full panorama of God's beautiful creation. Well, I think we're at one of those places in our story of Joseph. I believe that we have an opportunity to take in the view. As we look back, it's really honestly been a fairly uphill climb up to this point is we've traveled what I would call a trail of tests. A test designed by God to carry out a bigger purpose that we will miss if we don't stop and take a moment and look at the view. Because when we see the full panorama of what God has been doing, it should be breathtaking. And that's something that I don't want any of us to miss. Now, as I say that, there's something that you need to know about me. I'm a little bit afraid of heights. <laughs> it seems to be getting worse with age, but whenever I get up on somewhere really high and look down, I, I get a little queasy inside. And I want you to know that I have some of that same feeling this morning as I look at what is in front of us and the responsibility to try to describe it for you. Part of it is because of that challenge of describing something so beautiful in a way that accurately reflects what God has created. The other part of it is just the inability to, to know how to put that into words. It's kind of like last week. You remember when I showed you that picture of Michelangelo's sculpture called the Piata? what is considered to be his most famous, most beautiful work of art. Now, if I would have just named that for you or tried to describe it with my words, many of you would not have appreciated what I showed you without having seen the picture. Well, I don't have a picture of the panorama of God's handiwork that I want you to see. And not only that, not only do I, I feel somewhat inadequate for the task because of the difficulty of describing that beauty, there's also been times in recent weeks that I've struggled to see it myself. I know I'm supposed to be your trail guide. But there are times that I travel into some dark valleys just like you. And it's difficult to see 
the vision of what God has in store. And so I need you to know that even though I stand up here behind this pulpit, I walk with you in this journey of faith as we learn together to trust and follow the Lord. Um, And I just need you to know that. And, And at the same time, I want us to anticipate the beauty of what God has created. And let's stop and look and see what that's all about this morning. Before we do that, let me open our time in prayer. God, I do pray that your spirit would guide us, that you would lead us to see things that, that we may miss if we don't stop every once in a while and take in the view. Father, I realize that there are those of us who, as we travel life's journey, find ourselves into some dark places where, honestly, it's difficult to see what is before us. So would you take the scales off our eyes? May we see with the light of your grace the beauty of what you've created before us. May we be encouraged by that. May we be renewed in our spirit. May we be strengthened in our trust as we observe the sovereignty of your hand in all things, working everything according to your good purposes. Lead us in that way this morning. Amen. Well, if you'll allow me, I want to kind of continue with this mountaineering motif, right? And I want us to consider what I see as two distinctive trails that have been laid out for us in the story of Joseph so far. The first trail is what I would call the path of the faithful. This is the road that Joseph has traveled, and it represents God's work in the life of those who are following him. Those who were following his lead in their life and learning to trust in him. The other trail is what I would call the path of the unfaithful. This is the way of Joseph's brothers. And it represents the work of God in the lives of those who have really chosen to walk their own path. So instead of following God, they're choosing their own way. And as we think about that, I want us to realize that that you and I find ourselves on either of these paths at different points in our life. There are times that we are on the path of the faithful, walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. And yet there are also times for all of us that we lose our way. And before we know it, we end up trying to chart our own course only to find that we've really only been traveling in circles. A lot of movement, but not a lot of progress. We can be on either path at different points in our life. But what we've seen, and what I want us to observe as we stop and take a look at this morning, is that in the life of Joseph and his brothers, God has been sovereignly in control. In fact, there's never been a time that Either path has been outside of the reach of what he intended. In both the path of the faithful as well as the unfaithful, God has been gracious because of his great love to give guidance along the way. And the same is true for you and I. It's as if he's setting up trail markers and even more than that, standing in our path and inviting us to follow him. Now, regardless of what trail we're on, we still must decide 
to either walk in obedience or to choose a different path. And we never fully understand what God might intend until we begin to take some steps of faith. So with that in mind, let's look at the life of Joseph, down this journey of the, on the path of the faithful, and, and, and I'll show you what I mean. As we do that, I want us to, to think for just a moment and consider where we've been so far, even looking at things in view of what is yet to come. As we do that, we can see that in the life of Joseph, God has been working to preserve the nation of Israel in order that he might protect the promise of a Messiah that would come through this chosen people. Now, we would know and admit together that Joseph didn't know that. In fact, he probably never fully comprehended the scope of which God was using him in the life of his people. But from where you and I stand, In this opportunity to take a panoramic view, we can see the full landscape of God's handiwork. And so as we look back on Joseph's life and begin to to retrace some of his steps, I think it's important for us to understand that these are not just random, disconnected events. But instead, this is a, a picture of God's sovereign control as he is working all things together for his good purposes. As we do that, we remember that the first key event in the life of Joseph was when his brothers selfishly took him, threw him into a pit, and then sold him into slavery. As you recall, Joseph then ends up serving in the house of Potiphar, where he is then seduced and propositioned by his master's wife. The scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. And up to this point, he has been faithful to follow him. But now, God has allowed an encounter on his path where Joseph would be put in a position to make a decision, to to make a choice. Because don't think for a minute that that proposition made by Potiphar's wife wasn't tempting. The scripture tells us that Joseph was a single man he was good looking and potiphar had just potiphar's wife had just made him an offer to experience a moment of pleasure that she promised to keep a secret this is not just a sexual temptation either for joseph this is a test to see if he is willing to do what is right in the eyes of the lord even when no one else is looking and do you remember what he said Back in chapter 39, this is what he tells Potiphar's wife. He says, I am in charge of everything in this house, but you don't belong to me. How could I do this great evil and sin against who? God. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? In that moment, Joseph made a decision to trust in the hidden mystery of God's provision over the known pleasure of sexual sin. He was unwilling to walk away from God's path in order to follow the guilty pleasure of selfish desires. This is important because Joseph could not be the man that God wanted him to be, to work in the way that God intended, unless he believed 
and was convinced that God's way was best. And that's the way he would choose to go. And yet, as we learned, as a reward for his obedience, the Bible tells us that he was wrongfully condemned and thrown in jail. From our view at that time, and maybe even from Joseph's perspective as well, it appears as if bad things are happening to a good person. That he's being punished for doing the right thing. But now from our view up on this mountaintop, as we can take a bigger look and see the panorama, we notice that God is actually using this work, this event, to accomplish a greater purpose. The Scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph in that dungeon, just as it said that the Lord was with Joseph in that palace. God even gave Joseph favor in the sight of that jailer to the point that whatever Joseph did, the Scripture tells us, the Lord made to prosper. Joseph is finding that God is faithful in all the details of his life and that there is nowhere, nowhere that he can go where he would be hidden from the presence of the Lord. This is so important in the next major event of his life because it is here that Joseph is faced with another decision of integrity. But unlike the the black and white decision of Potiphar's wife, Joseph's next encounter with the cupbearer and the baker would present a unique opportunity for compromise. As he interpreted their dreams, you'll remember how easy it would have been to have spoken the truth when there was a personal benefit while avoiding the truth when it required a sacrifice. Because you'll remember it appears as if he's being punished for doing the right thing. And so now he has a decision to make. Is he willing to make the hard decision and risk the same thing happening again? Well, apparently so, because Joseph faithfully tells the cupbearer and gives him the good report. And at the same time, he chooses not to withhold the bad report from the baker. Once again, God is at work in Joseph's heart to lead him to a place where he is unwilling to compromise, even if it costs him something to do so. Joseph is finding that the presence of the Lord is sufficient to meet all his needs. And this is a most important conviction when Joseph is called on to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh in the next scene of our story. Because do you remember what he said? Pharaoh approaches him, pulls him out of the jail and and, and says to him, I understand, Joseph, that you have the ability to interpret dreams. Do you remember what Joseph said in response? He said, it is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You see, Joseph is unwilling to take credit for something that ultimately belong to God. He is openly dependent upon the Lord to do something through him that he is incapable of outside of God's provision. You see, God has guided Joseph to a place where he is now capable of serving with uncompromising integrity 
as the most powerful ruler in all the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Through his leadership, God would work through Joseph to save hundreds, even thousands of people from the most severe famine this land has ever seen. And so now that we're here, we need to take a moment to stop and to look at the view from where we stand. We can look back and see how God worked consistently in the life of Joseph, shaping his heart to be a man of integrity as he learned to trust in the Lord through faithful obedience. We can then look ahead and see how God uses this man to preserve a nation, to protect them from a natural disaster that they would have never seen coming. And still, even further in the distance, we can see that all this was a part of God's plan to protect His promise so that He might bring salvation to the world through the nation of Israel. Now just think about it. That is quite a view. This is more than just a simple story about the character of one man named Joseph. This is a glimpse into the picture of a beautiful narrative of God's redemption that continues to this day. But we also said there was another trail in our story, didn't we? This is the path of the unfaithful, a well-traveled trail chosen by Joseph's brothers. And although it's a different path, I want you to see how God actually uses it to lead them to a common destination. I find it interesting that the first and most important step in the journey that Joseph took brought them to a place, brought him to a place where he refused to sin. You'll remember that was the encounter with Potiphar's wife. And he said, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? And now Joseph's brothers will face a similar decision that involves the obstacle of sin as well. Unlike Joseph, his brothers have not been faithful. In fact, they have been walking the path of sin. And so in order for them to get their lives back on track, they're going to need to change directions. And God gave them that opportunity. And by allowing them to, to spend time examining their life in the confinement of a jail cell under the provision made by Joseph for a period of three days. It was during this time, the Bible tells us, that they collectively came to the decision where they confessed these words. They said, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. This is so important. Because it reminds us that we cannot get our life back on track until we admit that we are on the wrong path. Until Joseph's brothers confess their sin, they have no hope of finding the way of salvation. But they did. They admitted their guilt, and what happened next would test their motivation to determine whether they were willing to change directions and to begin to follow the Lord. 
Simeon, as you remember, was being held back in prison in the land of Egypt. And so when they get home, as they pull down the sacks of grain that each of them carried in their own possession, they realize that the money that they had used to purchase that grain had now been placed in the mouth of each man's sack. It appears as if they've been framed. And so when they would return to Egypt, they must choose to decide whether to hide their sin, which they have done very successfully up to this point, or to choose a different route, to decide to be honest, even at the risk of their own personal security. As we learn, they chose the latter and learned that God's grace was lavished upon them. They are honest about the money. Do you remember what the steward said as we learned last week? He tells them, your money has come to me and your account has been paid in full. Everything you now have is a gracious gift from God. See, they confessed their sin. They changed their direction. And now they are on a path of following the Lord. In fact, they're so grateful for the blessing that they know they did nothing to deserve that when Benjamin is given special treatment at that table as they sat down to eat a meal with Joseph, they give it no consideration. Their jealousy could not be provoked because it was overruled by a grateful heart. But there's still one more decision that they must make along their journey of faith. And this is a hard one. In chapter 44, we learn that that Joseph's brothers prepare for their journey back to Canaan. Unbeknownst to them, Joseph has once again instructed his stewards to take the money that each of them used to pay for the grain that they had purchased and to put that money, that silver, into the mouth of each man's sack, just as he had done before. But this time, Joseph also instructs the steward to place a very special cup, a silver cup, in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. After the brothers were well down the road, Joseph told his men to overtake his brothers and to accuse them of stealing this cup. They even go so far as to criticize Joseph's brothers for deliberately repaying evil for good. In other words, you are taking advantage of the gifts that you've clearly been given by taking something that never belonged to you in the first place. Now, I don't know about you, but as we've followed this trail and seen the tests that the brothers have had to go through, I began to wonder why... Joseph won't give his brothers a break. I mean, it seems that they've done a pretty good job of of demonstrating that their heart has changed, that they're finally on the right path. But, But he seems to keep pressing them. I think part of that answer is found in verse 9. If you would, go ahead and turn to chapter 44, verse 9. Keep in mind, as we've already said, Joseph instructed his servants to to track down his brothers. When they do, they, they interestingly, as you read the passage, they make no mention of the silver that has been placed in their sacks. But they accuse them of stealing something from Joseph's house, this silver cup. In response, look at what Joseph's brothers say in verse 9. 
They say, with whomever your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slave. They were so convinced of their innocence that they, they made a bold claim, putting their lives at risk. The servant then goes on to explain that he wasn't there to take anyone's life. But if someone was found guilty, that person would be taken back as a slave in Joseph's house. So they all pull down the sacks of grain from their donkeys. And they find, just as Joseph intended, that the cup is in Benjamin's possession. I'm sure panic sets in because the scripture tells us that all the brothers go back to the house of Joseph. And when they arrive, true to his word, Judah pleads with Joseph to let him take Benjamin's place. He explains the commitment that he had made to his father to protect the life of Joseph with his very own life. And so he offers his life to take the place of Benjamin. Now, that's of great significance. Because I believe as far as Joseph's brothers are concerned, it's very possible that Benjamin is guilty. You see, they could explain the silver, right? Each man had what they brought with them and purchased. No one person looked guilty because they all had what they started with in the beginning. But there's only one cup. And that was something that never belonged to them in the first place. This is altogether different. And they had no way of proving Benjamin's innocence and maybe even doubted it themselves because after all, he is that spoiled, favored son of their father just like his brother Joseph. But whether Benjamin was guilty or not did not matter to Judah, because he had given his father his word. And maybe he'd even come to appreciate the, the second chances that God had given him. And so why wouldn't he be willing to do the same? Whatever the case may be, Judah and his brothers have learned to be quick to give grace, slow to judge, and ready to forgive. This is a beautiful transformation that I think we should stop for a moment and once again take in the view. Let's look back at the lives of Joseph's brothers. And as we do, we can see how God was working in their individual hearts to reveal their sin and, and bring them to a place of repentance. He's led them down a, a path of reconciliation within their family. And as we look ahead, we can see how vitally important this is for the nation of Israel. You see, the book of Genesis is going to end with the story of Joseph. The next thing on the timetable of events in the nation of Israel is 400 years of slavery. The Bible says that after Joseph dies, there was a king who reigned in Egypt who did not know Joseph. So instead of showing favor to this Hebrew nation who had now populated the land of Egypt... This king made a decree to force them into hard labor as slaves. But once again, Joseph nor his brothers could never have seen this coming. They 
had no idea what was around the corner because they could not see that far. But can you imagine what a disaster it would have been for the nation of Israel to have entered into this time of slavery in the same condition which existed when our story of Joseph began. Instead of reconciled relationships, they would have been a people divided by hatred and strife. The Bible tells us, in fact, Jesus said, a house divided will not stand. And so if the famine didn't kill them, their hatred for one another would. And so now we can see, as we look at this big picture view, that God was restoring these broken relationships in order to preserve His promise by creating peace among His people. Once again, preparing them for something they could have never seen coming. And so although Joseph and his brothers were on two different paths, the sovereignty of God's guidance has led them to a common destination, the place of his redemption. He has worked in their individual lives, unifying their faith as a people in order to bring salvation to the world. That's the view we have from where we now stand. And as we look at that, I want you to consider the fact that the same is true for you and I. As we learned in Philippians, God, who began a good work in you, is faithful to complete it. Like we see in the life of Joseph and his brothers, God is shaping our individual hearts and he is preparing us for things yet to come, things we have no ability to see on our own. But this work in our individual lives for all of us is part of a much bigger story. Just as God unified the faith of the nation of Israel, He continues this same work in the church of Jesus Christ. It is our unified testimony that brings the good news of Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection is the way of salvation for the world. Knowing this, I think it's good every once in a while to stop and look at life outside of ourselves. Because we all know, we all know how easy it is to get lost in the details of our life. And we forget that there is a much bigger story going on than what is happening in our own little world. Now, sometimes those details that enter into our world are uninvited. Our failing health, unexpected tragedies. At other times, they come by our own choice as we become preoccupied with the success of our careers, the pursuit of our education. We can even be consumed by good things like building a healthy family or living a healthy lifestyle. But when these things become our greatest passion, when we are consumed with the focus of these things in our life, we risk losing sight of the bigger story that we have all been created for. We need to stop and look at the full view of what God is doing in our individual lives, 
by unifying the faith of His people in order to bring salvation to the world. This is the bigger story. And it is ultimately what we were created for. Only God can work all things together, all these details of our life, for the good of those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purpose. And hear me very clearly. The purpose of God always has been and always will be leading people to the place of His redemption. And that's only found through faith in Christ alone. You are a part of that bigger story. And so let me encourage you this week to to take some time and consider the, the complexity of your life and to ask the Lord to show you how to simplify and to sharpen your focus so that you can see the bigger picture and the part that He intends for you to play in the work of His redemption. Stop every once in a while and look at what God is doing in the landscape of history And let me encourage you to be in awe of the beauty of His manifold wisdom and grace, working all things together for the fulfillment of His purpose of bringing men, women, boys, and girls to the place of redemption. Because remember, even now, in this moment, God is at work in your individual life unifying the faith of who we are as His people so that we might bring the message of salvation to the world. We are a part of the bigger story. And that's ultimately what we have been created for. Do not lose sight of that most beautiful view. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to stop. Amidst all the details of our lives, as we've said, some uninvited things that distract us because uh, in some cases we don't know what the future holds. Is the cancer going to be that which ultimately costs us our life? Or will we be healed? Is this dysfunction in our family ever going to end? Or is there hope? In some cases, they are invited because we intentionally become preoccupied with things that we feel are necessary to give us value in our lives, success in our careers, in our education. Father, even we can make our own families an idol. Good things that were intended for good purposes that have an inordinate value that you never intended. Because everything falls second to your work to carry out redemption because you tell us you desire none to perish but all to come to eternal life. You're not slow about your promise. The very reason that you have not come already is because there is time for more to come into faith with you. Trusting, changing paths, getting on the the way of salvation. So, Father, help us to see our part in that bigger story, to catch a view of what you're doing in the landscape of history, to direct men and women, boys and girls, to a place of redemption through faith in Christ alone. Thank you for our time this morning.
We pray this in your name. Amen.